and welcome to an extra spooky episode of Game Breaking Feature, the podcast that analyzes and discusses common elements of modern video game design and development. Now, let me introduce the ghoulish host of this show, <laughs> Stephen Bennett. <laughs> wow. Oh, holy cow. That was uh, Whoa, quite the uh, intro. Thank you, uh, boogeyman that lives in my um, closet. <laughs> I don't, I've never had an intro like that. That was pretty impressive. Ah, thank you. Yeah, I am, uh, I am Stephen Bennett. This is Game Breaking Feature. And uh, today we're getting a little bit into the Halloween spirit. We're going to be talking about survival horror. What defines the survival horror genre? What mechanics do we love and hate? Why am I filled with dread whenever I hear static on the radio? To help me answer these questions is a man who's so brave he thought PT was a comedy. My good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, how are you doing? Or, uh, I'm sorry, I should say, how are you booing? <sighs> See, norm normally, I had something prepared for this intro. Uh, now, I just don't know anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm 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 I've doing out, I've fine. I've done you finally. I've outdone I've, you. I've I've left you speechless. Now you know what it's like in my shoes every time we do this show. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm doing okay. A little worse than I was before we started the podcast, but we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll turn this around. I think we can still salvage the rest of this episode. Yeah. Sorry about. I see. All right. I'm not I'm not much of a voice actor, but I, you know I was kind of going for I don't know like creepy ghoul, and I think I came out a little bit more junk rat than I was expecting. Well, I mean, you have a costume idea, I guess, for the <laughs> next week. Yep. Jared, we have yes. a, uh, a really exciting episode, a great topic for the Halloween season, because joining us today is a wonderful guest. She's a host on the What's Good Games podcast, a regular on Kind of Funny Games Daily, and the hardest working person in the industry. Please welcome Andrea Renee. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? You know, I almost walked out with that terrible bad jokes open. Oh my gosh, how well are you doing? Get out of here. <laughs> I have never, Steve, see, when you let me take care of that, we've never had a guest threaten to walk out. So it's, I mean, and it's a little dangerous. Record, I would never call myself the hardest working person in the industry. There are tons of hardworking individuals. Greg Miller calls me the busiest lady in the business. Because I certainly am busy, and I don't. I, I not to say that I'm not a hard worker, but there's a lot of hardworking people uh, who work in video no, games. No, I'm. No, I'm. I'm calling you that. Oh, why? Thank you. <laughs> of course, of course. You know, Andrea, when we started putting this show together, it was actually right around the time you guys started the What's Good Games podcast. I'd written down like I think three names for people that I eventually wanted to get on this show as guests. So, really short list, and uh, and your name was one of them. So this is actually. Really exciting for me because I, I remember listening to you back when you were on um, Weekend Confirmed, and that that was like my first experience hearing you. So having you on this show is just absolutely a treat for me. So thank you for thank you for agreeing to be here. You're very welcome, and that was a fantastic show. I loved being part of Weekend Confirmed with Garnet Lee and Jeff Kanata and Spicer and Jane Stevenson and Ozzy Mejia and all the other people that they would have come in and out of that studio. So uh, I miss that show a lot. We talk about getting together for a reunion every once in a while. So I'm going to try to make it happen next year. I remember like the, the last episode of that show, just Garnett was so emotional. And I was like, man, this is this is what podcasting is about. Yeah, absolutely. You, you recently um, you started What's Good Games. Like I said, I think you guys started that podcast around the same time we started ours. So that was what, like four months ago, five months ago? We launched in May. 
Well, for for our listeners who might not be familiar with What's Good Games, um, fill them in. What's the sh- what's the show all about? Sure. So, What's Good Games is a podcast all about you guessed it, video games, and we break down and analyze the current news of the week. We talk about our hands-on impressions, either for games that we saw behind closed doors at preview events or are currently playing that are out on the market. And then we throw a little bit of something special in at the end of the show, whether it be a special interview, a discussion about some kind of hypothetical question that our audience has brought to us, or if we're featuring a specific game, you know, we'll sometimes reserve that last section. For example, one of our more recent episodes, we did a life is strange before the storm episode one spoiler cast and our audience seemed to really love that and now that episode two is out we're looking forward to doing that as well but it's a fun show so i host with Brittany brombacher of blonder.com uh christine steimer who has um worked with a bunch of companies formerly bioware ea playstation cd project red ign and then also with alexa ray korea who is currently at um uh, fandom, we're running their games department, but she's also worked at Polygon, at GameSpot, and a bunch of other places as well. Yeah, it's a it's a great show. It's a lot of fun. It's where I get a lot of my gaming news. Ever since starting this podcast, I've sort of been trying to broaden the the podcasts I listen to because for me, it used to just be DLC. And when I'd heard that you guys started What's Good Games, I was like, oh shit! Well, this is what I'm listening to now, and uh, it's been great. So. Thank you for starting that. Hey, uh, how, how thank have, you. I appreciate everyone... that you listen. That's awesome. Oh, of course. You're welcome. Yeah. How uh, how has the reception been since you guys started the show? It's been overwhelming. And the positive fan feedback has been super wonderful. And the amount of reinforcement we've been getting from our industry peers and partners has been really fantastic as well. I, I knew that we had something special because I've known these girls for a really long time, but I don't think we quite understood the scale at which we would grow. And we we're just so humbled and happy and honored to, that the gaming community has responded so positively to everything that we're doing. And we have a really great community on our Patreon page them our youtube comments are surprisingly (laughs) non-toxic and um we have a really growing facebook community as well so it's been it's been really awesome yeah that's really cool i mean you ladies definitely sort of engender a uh, an atmosphere of positivity on that show so i i think it would be kind of hard for someone to become toxic and in Steve, you clearly things. have not spent enough time on YouTube. Yeah, I was like, you'd be surprised. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, yeah, I, I trust me, I know what the what the internet holds, but I, I think, um, and we talked about this in our last episode. One of one of the goals for this show is to try to keep things positive, try to keep the conversation about the things that we enjoy, and and not let it fall into that toxic. I don't know what you want to call it, like like go down that toxic road for as long as we can. You know, like eventually. I think when any when any community gets large enough, eventually there's going to be people that come in and are toxic. But but I, I you know that's one of the things I appreciate about your show is again that that positivity, and I, I think that helps keep that toxicity away. So I'm I'm glad to hear that you guys have have been having a, a really good reception in that regard. Uh, what's uh, what's your favorite part of doing the show so far? My favorite part of doing the show is getting to hang out with my friends every week, which is a blessing that I get to have a business with a bunch of people that I really respect and love being around. But we started the podcast because a lot of us were looking for a regular place to have conversations about games. Because at the time before we started, 
I was still freelancing, kind of gun for hire, doing one-off contract work, you know, for people like IGN and GameSpot and working with kind of funny, very sporadically. And so I was really looking for a place where I could go every week and talk about games instead of just constantly doing guest spots on other people's shows. And I spoke to Alexa Ray about it first. And she and I decided, you know, this would be a really fun project that we could commit to. And then, you know, we brought Brittany and Steimer into the fold and it just kind of took off from there. And we decided at the very least we would launch with a podcast because that was something we could commit to doing every week. And now we're doing more than that. We're doing, you know, weekly Facebook exclusive videos. We're doing monthly Patreon exclusive streams and content and monthly public streams on Twitch. And we're looking to add some more content. We have a custom show launching pretty soon. And we're really looking forward to seeing, you know, what 2018 holds. See, and that's why, that's why I called you the hardest working person in the industry. <laughs> it's a lot. It, you know, you have to be really um, hyper organized and on top of your time management. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I really love my job and I love the people that I get to work with. And while it still is work, there's always a misconception that maybe you guys get as well that, you know, oh, we just sit around playing games all the time and get paid to play video games. When in fact, like that's the exact opposite. Getting to play games is such a small portion of my weekly responsibilities that during times like this, where there are several amazing titles all out at the same time, it gets really difficult yeah. to maintain coverage because you just don't have enough hours in the day to do all of the busy work that comes along with running a business and running a media site and also actually get to play the content. <laughs> of course. And this weekend is going to be a huge weekend. I don't know how anyone's going to get in Mario and Assassin's Creed and... Wolfenstein all at the same time. I mean, it's really just not even possible. I'm, I've started with Wolfenstein because thankfully Bethesda sent me an early access code so that I, I can kind of start working on it right away. And I dropped the difficulty all the way down to the easiest level because I'm like, listen, I don't have time to die. <laughs> I just have to like <laughs> see as much of this story as I can, you know, before Assassin's Creed hits. But, you know, it's, it's just too much because both Assassin's Creed and Super Mario Odyssey are two titles that I'm incredibly excited about Assassin's Creed being one of my favorite franchises and then of course Mario being one of the top franchises in video games of all time looking to take game of the year away from Zelda which is crazy to think about that Nintendo could have two game of the year contenders in the same calendar year um, but it's it's a great time to be a gamer. Now you had mentioned your work on kind of funny games you're a you're a regular on kind of funny games daily what's your what is your role with kind of funny games so i am a co-host slash contractor with kind of funny games so what i do is i'm a i'm a regular co-host with greg every week and so i'm part of the the team for kind of funny games daily which is their daily news show that streams live on twitch and then is uploaded to you their youtube channel and of course podcast services and then i also will appear from time to time in other kind of funny content whether that be the games cast part Party mode, which was out recently for Friday the 13th. Um, I'll sometimes go to preview events with them. And also I'll appear every once in a while on the regular kind of funny content like uh, the Game Over Greggy show and some other stuff that they have. But um, first and foremost, those guys and girls are my friends and I love hanging out with them. And when they originally approached me about working with them in an actual professional capacity, I was ecstatic. I was like, of course, tell me where to sign up. I'm there. Yeah. How could you say no? Well, I mean, I'm, I, my time is very limited. So that was my biggest concern. I was like, do I have time to say yes? <laughs> 
And luckily we were able to work out a system where I wouldn't need to be there all five days a week. So that way I was able to say yes. Right on. And you recently were hosting and commentating at the uh, Nintendo World Championships. How did, see, I'm curious, like, how did that come about? Is that something that you're invited to do or is that something that you apply to do and then... I don't know, interview for? I don't know. How did that happen? So Nintendo approached me directly and asked if I would be interested in working with them. And that's a situation where like, who would say no to that? <laughs> um, and so they invited me to come to the Nintendo World Championships as the stage host for the project. And I, of course, was, I couldn't say yes fast enough. And I remember when they were trying to do, pitch me on the event and trying to explain what it was. And I was like, I don't, I don't care. Like just, uh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> like absolutely like falling over myself to say yes. So it was it was a really great time getting to work with Bill Trennan and the rest of the Treehouse team and of course my casting co-host Jordan Kent who is phenomenal and incredibly talented. The entire team there is so passionate about what they do. It's such a joy to work with people who find so much um, love and creativity in their work, which not to say that I I would guess that most people who work in the video games business have that same kind of passion and joy but for some reason there's something about nintendo that feels a little bit more magical and i think it's because we all have at least one if not many positive memories in our childhood and adulthood of nintendo and nintendo games oh yeah absolutely. nintendo is like the disney of the video game world it's just you're absolutely. never really too old to enjoy the the kind of magic that they put out oh for sure yeah but today we are talking about survival horror games. Jared, we normally start out talking about the origins of our topic. So where did survival horror games get their start? Let's hop in the time machine. Cue the it, sound effect. And it, there it goes. It just went. Okay. Um, when we look at modern survival horror games, we see a lot of the same themes that we're familiar with from literature like H.P. Lovecraft and Japanese cinema You'll see this theme of journeys through the depths come up a lot, which was common to Lovecraftian literature. An early example of a survival horror game was a game developed at Tokyo University called Uchu Yusosin Nostromo. It was developed by Akira Takaguchi for the Commodore PET 2001 computer system. It was later ported to the PC 6001 by Masakuni Mitsuashi and published by ASCII. This game was heavily inspired by a 1980 Japanese stealth game called Manabiki Shoju and the 1979 film Alien. And the way it worked in the game was you control a dot and you move around a simplistic looking ship while avoiding an alien that resembles the ad symbol. The alien's hidden until the player gained line of sight and the goal was to collect enough components to escape the ship without being detected. This is one of the first times that the player was given a more passive role making the way through the game versus actively going after an objective. So, you know, it's we're kind of pushing the boundaries of what we would consider early horror, but that's a good that's a good starting point, I think. Yeah. The the inter- one of the interesting things about this game um so it came out in 1981. That same year there was a game for the Atari 2600 called Haunted House. Really clever name. Um, and in that game, it was, it played very similar to, um, Nostromo, this Japanese horror game. You were like just a pair of eyeballs that were walking around a mansion and you could like, the goal was to pick up a key and move on to like the next floor of the mansion. And 
it's kind of interesting if you look at Nostromo and Haunted House side by side because they are both operating on sort of very similar like ideas of horror about monsters being hidden until you're within the same room as them and having to collect these resources from around the environment in order to escape. Um, but they were both developed on like opposite sides of the world. The Haunted House game was developed, uh, I believe, in the United States, at least in the in the West, and uh, Nostromo developed in Japan. So I think it's kind of cool that these two very similar styles of game were being developed um, on, on completely different sides of, of the world by very different people with different contexts and backgrounds for what defined horror, uh, at least the horror genre in their cultures. Well, I think as we, as we sort of dive I, I into this, where you would see a lot of games trying to emulate literature and, and cinema of the time. So this, I think, is not an unknown, an unknown tactic of soliciting that, that intensity um, while setting it in sort of a, a rough horror atmosphere is that you know that fear of the unknown i think will kind of continue to uh, be a theme as, as we continue down here and now there's there's one other game from 1980 that's one of my favorites because i i played it when i was a kid and it's zork um which for those that don't know zork is the text-based adventure game basically you start out in front of a house and there's a mailbox and all of your interactions with the world are by sort of typing in what you want to do in, in that world. So open mailbox, read leaflet, you know, open door. Like you type those things in and then the game will then present you with text explaining like what the next step of that journey is for you. Okay, you open the mailbox. Oh, here's what the leaflet says, that kind of stuff. It's all text-based. Um, I don't know if this could really be defined as a horror game, but I remember it was like whenever you were in pitch black there was this creature called the Gru that had a chance of just eating you whenever you were in pitch dark. And I remember when I was a kid, the Gru seemed kind of scary to me. It was one of the like the earliest computer games I remember playing because my my um, my parents both really liked Zork a lot. But there's uh, the quote from the game is like burned into every Zork player's memory. It's it is pitch black. You are likely to be eaten by a Gru, like all Zork players. Like that, that sends shivers down their spines. <laughs> if you like that, you might like. There's an iOS game called A Dark Room that came out um, a few years ago, and it's it's just like that. It's a text-based game, and you start out like in your camp, and your your job is to kind of venture out further and further, and bring back firewood. Make sure you have a torch, and as you go out, like the the things that you encounter get bigger and harder to defeat. If you have an iPhone, I recommend checking out A Dark Room. It, it's it sounds very inspired by Zork. The term survival horror actually wasn't coined until 1996 with the release of the first Resident Evil. Uh, a lot of games retroactively went back through once that term became more mainstream and started calling these older games survival horror, but Capcom used that term specifically in their marketing for the first Resident Evil. When we had Mary Kish on the show, we were talking about Beneath Apple Manor, which preceded Rogue, but then people went back and called beneath Apple Manor, a roguelike. So that happens elsewhere in, in video game history as well, not just in this case. That pretty well covers, I think, the the history of survival horror. This was, this was actually really fascinating. So there's an article I found when doing research for this, and we'll probably post a link to it on uh, 
on the show notes and then also we'll 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 tweet it out because there's a lot more to this history that uh, that I didn't realize. So this was a this was a fun one to look up. But before we proceed too much further into our discussion of survival horror, I think it's going to be important for us to define what we mean when we're we're talking about survival horror. Andrea, I'll throw it to you. When when you think about a survival horror game, what what are the elements that define that term for you? What what elements make a game a survival horror? Generally, survival horror games mean that they have a couple of set parameters. First, it's a limited resources. So whether that be bandages, first aid, bullets, weapons, flashlight batteries, whatever the mechanic is in that particular game, it's limited. And so you have to constantly be watching your resource management. Um, obviously, you know, supernatural or horror storylines and narratives, things that are spooky and um obviously um you know combat can be emphasized or de-emphasized i mean in traditional survival horror games there wasn't like as much combat as there is today generally it's more of like a, a running away hiding stealthing um versus some more combat focused things that we're seeing clearly the resident evil franchise branched more into action combat survival horror in its later iterations than it did when it first originated but we're also seeing newer franchises in the survival horror genre for example like um like the evil within from shinji mikami you know from the original resident evil and how they really brought combat into that series in a very interesting way yeah, I, I like that you started out by talking about this idea of scarcity in survival horror, because I think everyone kind of understands what the horror part means. The horror part means that there's going to be like grotesque monsters and uh, a horror storyline with jump scares. And there's, you know, a certain atmosphere that exists in horror video games. But I think what's kind of been happening lately, although we might be sort of seeing a return to this, but games moving away from this idea of scarcity. The Resident Evil series is a, is a good example of this where like Resident Evil 1 movement was slow, combat was was difficult. But then you get to a game like Resident Evil 5, 5 games later, and that's more of like an action horror game than a survival horror game. So I think for this this topic of survival horror, I think scarcity is a an important part of what defines the survival aspect of survival horror. Right. I mean, the imagery and setting of Doom is obviously horrific and often like upsetting, but then you're just going around and punching demons in the face as they explode and, and unloading unlimited amounts of ammo into them. So obviously that probably wouldn't qualify in our discussion. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think what I like in my survival horror games is that that disempowerment. I think that's important for survival horror games that combat is not necessarily always the best way to address every situation but i i like you know being able to use stealth or hide or you know use combat if the situation calls for it but but having a character feel truly imperiled is what for me defines survival horror and i think that's what kind of made survival horror take off was the fact that it was trying to do something different where most games preceding it, you know, the, the easiest cop out to make something a video game is to have something to shoot at or something, uh, you know, an objective to, to attack or some way, another way to defeat versus, you know, here comes survival horror game like resident evil. And you're 
best course of action most of the time is to run away. Uh, so I think that kind of shook up the entire theory of game design in a way where you're not just trying to enact violence on something. Someone's trying to enact violence on you. And I think that sort of turned the uh, the tables a little bit on gamers. Yeah. Now, Andrea, do you remember the first survival horror game you ever played? I don't know if it would count as a true survival horror game, but certainly the scariest and spookiest horror game that I played as a child was Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> the, the Nickelodeon <laughs> Yeah, one? so the Tale of Orpheus oh, Curse. Right I don't know if you guys remember this game. No, I do not. I don't. I don't think I don't think I even knew they had a game. I loved that show when I was a kid. Yeah, and, it was it's a really I mean, great game. I would have loved to know there was a game. Yeah, so it was released in 1994. It was published by Tectoy and of course it was a DOS game. Um and it was available on on Mac as well. And I think there are still like ROMs or emulators where you can play it now. And of course there's plenty of Let's Plays available on YouTube, but um it was a really fun it was a really fun game and like the thing about it is that it had just enough spookiness without being downright scary because it ultimately was meant to be like a teenager's game not to be something like mature rated and so in the game you're trying to prove your worthiness of joining the midnight society you know by telling a scary story because that's like the whole shtick of the show was like everyone's gathered around telling a story at the beginning of every episode so the story is um, about a girl named Terry and she dares her brother Alex to enter Orpheus Palace a theater that has been condemned and abandoned for over 50 years after a series of mysterious deaths and disappearances so of course it's said to be cursed and haunted um and the whole idea is that you're making your way through this um this theater trying to figure out what happened there wait 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 was this the game was it done with like um like photos like real photographs of the environment um i don't know if they were real but it was all i mean like the graphics look like super old school I might have actually, now that you're describing it, I, I feel like I've played this game before. There was also... I'd have to, I'll have to go yeah, see it. I, 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 I if you go pull up some Let's this. Plays on YouTube, it might jog your memory a little bit. Um, and uh, another game that I really enjoyed was The Seventh Guest, but obviously that was more of like a mystery oh, yeah. thriller than a survival horror. Yeah, my, my parents, like I said, they were big into Zork. So a lot of those sort of um, like mist clones i guess you could maybe call them those like um puzzle solving mist likes yeah mist likes i got a lot of experience with a lot of those so yeah i remember um seventh guest that was a good one now did that did those scare you i think they were more creepy than anything i i remember are you afraid of the dark being a little bit more jump scary than your average mystery game because there were a couple of parts where you didn't like know what was going to come around the corner or what was going to be behind a door. I mean, and we're seeing a lot of that in some of these almost walking sim games that are coming up now. Things like, mm-hmm. you know, like Layers of Fear or even like Slender, um, Five Nights at Freddy's, which are really just like a lot of you walking around discovering the environment for the first time, not necessarily mm-hmm. chasing down an enemy or having enemies chase you down. And um, that's kind of where it, th- that would be what I would classify it as more of than like an actual, you know, combat game. Now, Jared, what was your first survival horror game? It was the original Resident Evil. I, I remember renting it from a blockbuster because of the, the scary ass cover on the front of the, the zombie face. Yeah. And um, I, I don't remember getting too far into it because I just, I rented it for like a weekend or two and then uh, returned it. 
but it definitely at whatever age I was like 13, 14 years old, I, it stuck with me. And when I heard resident evil two was coming out, I was super excited and I picked that up as soon as I was able to. And I think that was, I think resident evil two is probably like my first like full playthrough of that type of game. And uh, I, I think I'd say today it's probably it would end up on my top 10 games of all time just because of the experience. I'm sure going back to it, it would probably not hold up, but I, I do remember like having a really good time with that and I wouldn't play it by myself. I, I always had my friends come over and hang out with me while we played it together because it was uh, those jump scares, man. Those dogs jumping through the window. That that's uh, yeah. that was a super scary at the time. The game that like really terrified me was Silent Hill 2, which I think I want to say was like 98 or 99. Yeah. And that was a game that I could only play during the daytime. When I felt really brave, sometimes on the weekends, I would like turn it on at night and it was usually for like half an hour. <laughs> it's like, stressful. That's how the, I know. That's how I played that game because it was, it was like that terrifying to me. Games don't do that to me anymore. Do you guys find that? Like, I, I don't know, Andrea, if, you've, if you had that experience playing horror games when you were younger. It's worse now than it was then. I think my parents, I think my parents shielded me a lot from the truly scary stuff when I was still living at home in, when in my middle, like middle school into my teenage years. But now I will actively avoid horror-based games. Um, and it's it's just one of those things that I just don't find a lot of joy in, in, in get, getting scared and feeling nervous and waiting for something to jump out at me. I, the thing is, I really love horror movies. I like the idea of being scared at a movie because you can close your eyes or put your hands over your ears if it gets too intense and then the, yeah, the scene will pass. Yeah, you can pretty quickly disengage from that experience. Right, but when you're playing a game, you're actively involved in the horror and you have to force yourself to be in it and have agency and move forward and participate. And that's just not something that I crave from a video game experience. But I think the the genre has obviously had a renaissance in the last couple of years. And we've seen tons of people kind of coming out of the woodwork to make all types of horror games because it's been so popular, both with YouTubers and with Twitch streamers. And so that kind of community experience of people watching other people get scared is you know, surprisingly popular. And um, it's been interesting to see all the different types of games that have, you know, re- released in the last couple of years. I find myself sort of in the same boat where after I'm like busy all day and I've had a long day at work and I come home and I want to unwind with a video game, a horror game is not the one to do it with. I have to be in a very specific mood to sit down and Resident Evil 7 took me like three months to get through because I just, <laughs> I didn't want to come home and just like, shit my pants every time I walked into a new room in that game. That's funny, man. Yeah, I find that horror games don't affect me the way that they used to. Like, I I could definitely sit down and, and jam on Silent Hill 2 and not have any issues. It's not like the yeah. creepiness or the, or the I don't know, I guess the scariness of it. It's just like, I just find it stressful. It, it, it piques my anxiety in a certain way that if I'm not in the mood for that, experience that I don't enjoy necessarily, even though I, I, I think overall I still enjoy those types of games. Hmm. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just dead inside. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. The, the real world is far more horrific than any video yeah. game. But 
you know, yeah. so if you if you play video games for the experience of getting away from it, sometimes the the stress of of, of a jump scare is not what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, I play uh, Evil Within too to uh, take my mind off the news. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so Andrea, you've been playing uh, Evil Within too. How are, how are you enjoying that one so far? I've been surprisingly drawn to it in a way that I wasn't anticipating. So I originally played it with my co-host, Brittany Brombacher, because she is a huge fan of horror games and she's trying to get me into them. And so we streamed it, or excuse me, I streamed it on our Twitch channel. And, you know, it's the combat is surprisingly fun. It, it You could use a little work. The camera is a, a little sluggish and it feels like a little slow and a little clunky. But um, the balance between combat and exploration with light puzzle solving and, of course, you know, this really dark timeline uh, for the narrative all really blends together in a very satisfying way. And I'm having a good time with it. I'm at chapter 11 now, I think. So pretty deep into the game and looking forward to finding out what happens. Now, how is the survival side of that? You know, I've seen definitely in a lot of the marketing, they highlight the horror part of it. But I I was curious, especially since it's been getting so much positive buzz, you know, how, how does it do it at making you feel vulnerable in that world? Well, they do it in a couple of different ways. First, you have to collect green gel, which will upgrade your abilities by killing enemies. So yeah, you're ca- just like just like in real life, right? Yeah. So you're forced <laughs> <laughs> you're forced into these encounters in order to be able to upgrade, right? Like you can't just run away from the enemies. You do have to face them in order to upgrade, and you do that in a number of ways. So there's a couple of different weapons in the game that you can use and you can upgrade those weapons by collecting weapons parts. But the bullets is really where the kind of resource management comes in and the bandages and medical kits. So you can upgrade your health abilities over time, but in the beginning, you really can only take a couple of hits before you'll go down. And so you really have to be careful about when you're using your medical syringes or when you're going to you know, pop that very elusive med kit because they just are few and far between. And that's the thing that will replenish all of your health instead of just a portion of your health. And then the bullets, they what they've done is if you craft bullets in a crafting station, which are only available in certain parts of the story they cost you a certain amount of resources. And if you craft them in the field, they cost you three to five times the amount of resources crafting them on the fly. Like if you find yourself in a battle and you're like, wow, I've almost got this enemy. So instead of dying, I'm just going to spend the resources to craft like those two extra shotgun shells I need. They kind of penalize you and force you to think thoughtfully about it by making the cost so much higher than if you had prepared for your battle and crafted back at the base instead of waiting to do it in the field. This sounds really cool. I mean, this sounds like what what I like about survival horror. It's definitely one of those games I'm probably going to try to check out as soon as I can. But we've kind of been talking a little bit about it. I, I think this survival horror genre has changed over the years. I think there's sort of two approaches to it. There's sort of that like classic Japanese approach to it, which is a lot slower paced, really emphasizes that vulnerability through things like scarcity that we're talking about. And then there's sort of this like Western approach to survival horror, which is the more action-oriented 
games like like Doom, which you know maybe not necessarily a survival horror, but but we mentioned it was a a horror game. And I think you know for for better or worse, I think the Japanese horror games have started to at least over the last few years, started to become more like the Western games. You know, I had mentioned that Resident Evil 5 was more of an action game, and I think that that was kind of a response to this, like, Western influence on the genre. But which do you kind of prefer, Andrea? Do you do you like a game that, that is a little more action-focused, or do you like the survival horror games that are a little more cerebral and psychological? I definitely prefer more action-focused games because I play games for the escapism and for the fantasy. And sometimes when there's not a lot of mechanics involved in a game where it's just like a lot of walking around or talking to people or narrative work, it feels more like a movie or more like an interactive story. And while I definitely think that that style of games has a place in the entire video game landscape, for me personally, it's not what I'm drawn to playing. I think there needs a a game hasn't come out yet but there there should be a balance somewhere between resident evil 5's super action oriented gameplay and something like pt it was headed in such a cool direction and it was definitely more aimed at that psychological horror of of the unknown and what's what, what's going on why are you in this endless hallway why are you going around in circles that might be like one of my all-time disappointments in gaming history is that 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 thing never happened I don't know how representative that experience would have been of the final game, but somewhere between that and and a more action-oriented game like Resident Evil 5 would be, I think, the sweet spot for me. Because I really enjoyed Silent Hill 1 and 2, and those games were very much that that Japanese, slower-paced, uh, story-building story building narrative that, that had that slow burn to it, but very creepy. Yeah, now was that... Was that Hideo Kojima that was doing Silent Hills? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Him and uh, Guillermo del Toro were partnering on it. Yeah. A huge disappointment that that never came out. Now, Andrea, did you get a chance to play PT when it was out? No, I did not because that kind of game is exactly the kind of game that I avoid. <laughs> um, but I, of course, watched some other people play it and read a lot about yeah. it. And, uh, you know, it was it was really interesting. I remember when Hideo Kojima was at Gamescom and he was doing interviews and there was a really poignant part during one of his interviews where he talked about how they kind of had to, and I'm paraphrasing here, where they had to dumb down the graphics of PT so people wouldn't know it was made on Kojima's engine because his engine makes games look so good. They didn't want to give it away. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> it de- yeah, it definitely had like uh, its own look to it, but it was it was really I thought it was impressive. Oh, it was a it was a genius piece of marketing and you know, super innovative and I'm surprised more people haven't thought of doing something like that as far as like announcing a game or promoting a game. It was really well done and it's really kind of tragic because of, you know, the legal disagreements between you know, not only Kojima Productions, but Konami and PlayStation that they were forced to take it down. It's really kind of gross that they couldn't preserve it considering how innovative it was but you know say la vie i mean even pt as short of an experience as it was i i had like i made my wife play through that with me because i don't think i would have just sat down in a room by myself playing it we see a lot of um these like quote unquote walking simulators that are all sort of attempting to do different things but they all sort of seem to be this pushback against the 
I guess the norm, the typical game design. You know, I I've on the show many times um, touted Proteus as sort of like the perfect rebuttal to first person shooters, but I think that the you know, games like Insomnia or Outlast or um, Alien Isolation, these are sort of interesting approaches to game design where they're taking this idea of survival horror kind of back to its most basic elements and, and, and making a game out of it of like, what if, what if you're like, really your only way of interacting in this world is just walking and exploring it? I don't think we would have seen really anything like that when I was a kid. I mean, not that I can, not that I can remember you know, there were those those games like Seventh Guest where you were walking, but there was like a lot of like puzzle solving involved at those. And from my memory, there was not really like an active threat that was pursuing you. There may there may have been. Now it's been a while since I've played Seventh Guest, but these seem like a, a big pushback to what has kind of been this um, action creep in horror games. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. And Andrew, you said something that um, reminded me of something I wanted to talk about. You mentioned that the camera could use a little bit of work in, in Evil Within. One of the things that I thought made the Resident Evil series so intense was the camera and the controls of that series. At least up until Resident Evil 3, the camera was always locked off in one position in a room, so you couldn't really see all the way down a hallway or all the way around a corner. And for the most part, they had tank controls where you had when you pressed up on the d-pad that was forward no matter which way your character was facing and that made kind of maneuvering getting getting away from things kind of hard which i thought really added to the tension of the game i know a lot of people hated that um even when the resident evil remake came out they, they gave you the option to to have regular controls but that's something i kind of missed was like that that locked off camera and i don't know if a, a, a modern game could get away with that anymore um the the camera in Evil Within Two is that is there something similar like that or is it just kind of janky? You know, it's it's hard. I don't want to call it janky because it doesn't feel janky. Just feels slow. I think the frustration for me is that because they there is an emphasis on combat in that game. When I get into like a boss fight, and you have such limited resources when it comes to bullets. It's important for you to be able to line up the reticule and to aim properly. And in order to do that, the camera needs to have a certain amount of flow and feel good, right? You need to be able to like line up your shots relatively quickly. And I don't know if I agree with the idea that the camera is intentionally slow to build tension. It feels cheap to me that yeah, I, I that the enemies that I'm fighting are able to move very quickly around me, but I can't swing the camera around behind me quick enough to, sh to shoot them. And then when I do, the bullet doesn't get to them fast enough to hit their hitbox. And that to me just feels like, like sluggish game design. It doesn't feel like intentional atmosphere making. Yeah, that, that makes sense, especially if they're emphasizing a, a level of combat. I mean, I know in Resident Evil, I was constantly shooting off camera and just kind of hoping that my bullets were hitting. Um, but <laughs> that wasn't really the focus of the game. So I, I was willing to give that up. I'm willing to look past that. Same thing with uh, Silent Hill games. Uh, you, you had a lot of melee weapons, but sometimes there was, there was a few boss fights where using those tank controls and trying to like you could like aim up and down, but it was never quite clear if you were like hitting the boss unless you could see it. I don't know. I don't know if anything like that, if someone could like polish that into a modern game, I think that might be fun. 
but yeah i agree with like in the case of evil within that's not really adding a whole lot to it yeah there was a um in australia they just had a big gaming convention um where a lot of people were talking about game design and um i was i was i follow on twitter jennifer Sherl. she's um a game designer in australia i've mentioned her in our feedback section in the past but she did a presentation talking about uh like sort of game design from 10,000 feet. And she was talking about these things you're talking about, like camera controls. I don't think you could nowadays get away with completely taking the camera controls away from players because we sort of have those expectations about video games now that, you know, I'm, I'm in control. And if it doesn't feel snappy, it doesn't feel like um, it doesn't feel fair. But the point of well, one of the points of her presentation was there's other things that you can do in game design to kind of control where the player looks and what they can see. And she was talking about things like ladders, things like switches, things like lights. All of these things can kind of guide the player experience. They can guide where the player is looking and where they're walking and those kinds of things. So I think for especially for survival horror where pacing and atmosphere are critical components those kinds of game design decisions should be should be really important for those those kinds of games. Now, I have a, a question: Do survival horror games present any kind of like problematic issues? Do they reinforce problematic issues that are um, like prevalent in the games industry? Like Andrea, when you're when you're playing sort of modern survival horror games, are there any things that like stick out to you as as like I kind of wish, kind of wish this wasn't still a thing? Well, I think the 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 lack of agency is something that's incredibly frustrating. Something like you see in a series like Outlast for Outlast and Outlast Two, and I know that they have additional content that they've released for that franchise. So in that series, have you guys played any of those games? I played the yes. first one. Yeah, so you you play a defenseless, helpless person. You literally can run, hide, or die. Like, that's it. That's all you can do. And to me, I don't find anything intriguing about that gameplay because you have no power over any of these people. There was a point, I was playing an Outlast game, and um, there were these two enemies that... Um, started fighting each other and then they ended up killing each other and I was like hiding in the bushes and then one of them was carrying a flashlight and I walked over to the body could clearly see the flashlight the game would not let me pick up the flashlight because instead I had to find batteries to use my camera to use the night vision mode on my camera instead of the flashlight and to me that just seems like dumb game design if I'm in the world and you're not going to let me fight the very least you can do is let me pick up a flashlight if a character drops it it's kind of like the idea that a lot of characters like superhero characters either can't jump or they can't go in water and it's just like a fallacy within the game world that just doesn't quite make sense and so i would like this idea that you are a powerless person to go away because at the end of the day even though most of us wouldn't be able to fight off some of these supernatural enemies that are in these worlds we would be able to do a little bit more than just run away and and that's the part that's kind of frustrating but i also get that like that involves another layer of not only mechanics and code right but it involves new art assets new animations new level design because of the way that the pixels are going to be colliding if you're going to have combat in the game so i get that there's like a lot of stuff on the back end that needs to happen in order to make that work but i would just like to see that go away 
Yeah, now you're kind of talking about, I think, a sort of a fundamental shift in game design. I think a lot of other genres could learn from survival horror. So now maybe Outlast took it a little too far with completely disempowering you to the point that you can't lift a flashlight. But I would like to see other genres kind of embrace this idea of being able to interact with the world in ways that aren't shooting everything with a gun. I take your, you know, I, I take your point on the the whole Outlast thing with it being sort of like absurd that you're. I'm walking through a dark asylum. Why can't I pick up a flashlight? That doesn't make any sense. But I think that there could be something cool with the way that developers develop games and the way players play games if a, you know, a gun is not our only tool for interacting in those worlds, if we can find more creative ways to empower ourselves as the player. Well, I think this is a, a good spot to talk about uh, the series Fatal Frame, which was another Japanese developed game. And while you're not shooting a gun, you're, you're shooting pictures in that. But the, the only way that you could stop the ghosts from attacking you was to take a picture. And that was like your main source of light in a lot of, a lot of situations. And that was kind of unique because it would, it would, it would ward away the ghosts. And that was like the way to sur- survive the game all while telling the story set in this universe. So that's one unique way, I think, that you could go about it. One thing that I think is problematic about the way that a lot of survival horror games are designed nowadays, I think maybe we could have a discussion about violence and gore in games. But I think, for me, one of the the more problematic things that occurs in games is the portrayal and treatment of women in games. You know, in a lot of games, the inciting action... And this is not unique to survival horror games, but it just it appears, I think, a lot in survival horror is the main character has a loss of a wife or a daughter. Um, there's a lot of games that do this games like Silent Hill 2. Um, Resident Evil 7. Is, yeah, your wife is dead in Silent, in Silent Hill 2. What is, what is it in Resident Evil 7? Your girlfriend goes missing. Yeah. And like there's um, let's see, I'm, I'm looking over our list. Last of Us. Joel is is dealing with the loss of his daughter in that game as well, I believe, right? Yes. You know, so there's there's a term for this which was originally used to describe comic book characters, the arcs that they go through, but it's the woman in the refrigerator. Now, this is this is sort of like one component of the way that women are portrayed and treated in video games in general, but this one I think is is particularly prevalent in survival horror games and the, and I, I mean i don't know i don't know why like I, this is i mean the evil things. within two starts with you trying to save your daughter from a fire so it's yeah. like it's just it's a trope that is i think overused and it, it's it's kind of lazy storytelling in my opinion yeah yeah i mean at the end of the day it's like how many times can we you know try to save try to save a girl or you know, try to get revenge for the for the loss of someone. Well, it's it's a tough conversation to have, right? Because the the fact is that women make up more than fifty percent of the population of the planet. So therefore, women are going to be in narrative content, whether that be video games, movies, TVs, what have you. Now, oh, for should sure. we examine like the way that they're used and the narrative devices with which they're used? Of course. But I think that if you're talking specifically about, you know, like 
are you saving your wife? Are you saving your daughter? Um, you know, I think it's easy to fall back on those because they're so familiar to so many people because a lot of people have wives and daughters. Um, mm-hmm. I, would, I do agree that it would be a nice change of pace to see a female protagonist saving her husband. But what's the reality of that happening? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure how many people that would appeal to. It's, it's one of those things that is kind of a catch-22. You want to appeal to more people. And I obviously, as a woman, would much rather play a female character than a male character. But I don't make up a majority of the gaming populations for this particular genre of video games. Right? The, when you look at the statistical breakdown of female video game players and the types of games that they're playing... Survival horror is not at the top of that list. In fact, I would probably put my money on that it's at the bottom of that list. And so that's why you're kind of seeing these same tropes over and over again, because they're really tailoring and catering to the audience that they think is buying the games. Now, does that mean that that's what they should do? Not necessarily. I think that a lot of people out there are willing to, you know, extend their suspension of disbelief to say, hey, well, maybe I'll play as somebody's mother, even though I might be like a 14 year old boy, because I feel like the story is unfolding in an interesting way. And I want to step into the shoes of somebody else and have that experience. It's tough when you talk about horror because it comes from such a rich history of tropiness, yeah, <laughs> for lack of for a better sure. word. Um, and so a lot of what we have seen in the horror genre in film has just been carried over to the horror genre in video games. Yeah, you, you brought up some great points because it, it is this this genre is tied so closely to the the film horror genre and is also I mean, I, I think for the majority of video games, they're still designed to appeal to, you know, 18 to 25 year old straight white men. But, you know, I, I don't think that sort of excuses these kinds of trope. At, at a certain point, I would like to see the industry step up and say, you know, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're going to move away from this because we recognize that it's problematic. I mean, not only that, if you have a female protagonist or portray these stories with women in them in a different way, I think there's a lot of unexplored and interesting stories to be told using survival horror. That, oh, that, that they're just not doing because they're using these 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 cop out tropes that have been established over the years. Yeah, so. I mean, I think in general, most things move towards progressiveness. I, I think that gradually all things sort of get better, even knowing what the world is like out there today. I, I think that in general, things kind of move towards being more accepting. I don't think it happens overnight. I think it happens in little tiny baby steps. And I'd be curious if this is one of those things that we see changed over time as a culture, as we become more aware of issues facing women, issues around violence. um, It's just another one of those things things that I think indie developers have a unique opportunity for. So if that's something that uh, people who are making these games see as uh, issue that they would like to address, then the indie scene, I think, has a very... Um, strong position to explore that idea. Whether or not that's been done yet, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Andrea, thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Sorry to kind of like <laughs> throw that all on you. I hope I hope it doesn't come across like I'm asking you to speak for all women on that topic. No, it doesn't. It's just talking about survival horror. 
This is like the most fucked up stuff we could possibly be talking about. We're talking about demons. We're talking about ghouls. We're talking about satanic things. We're talking about people getting body limbs cut off. We're talking about supernatural. I mean, this is in general the most horrific video games will become. And so when we're talking about things, bad things happening, it, you kind of got to suspend the d- disbelief a little bit and go bad stuff's happening to everybody in this genre of video games and not just make it about bad stuff happening to women that's just my that's just my stance is like hey i've been playing some scary games lately and guess what it's bad for everybody i got you i guess this is, might be a good time for us to jump into what we want to see in the future of survival horror games like what do we want to see improved upon how can the genre be made better Andrea, I'll throw it to you first. What would what would you like to see done differently in the future? Um, I would really like to see more developers who are working in the survival horror genre spend more time on their asset building. I've seen a lot of really popular, you know, survival horror or scary, spooky games that just seem a little lack little lacking in the polish department whether that be the art department not doing their due diligence to make sure all of the assets you know look up to snuff or whether that be in the mechanics or the code writing i just when you see a lot of these really popular games they have a level of jankiness that to me seems a little lazy now i don't know the specific stories and reasons behind the creative for these teams. Most of the time, these teams are pretty small and they're dramatically underfunded, which is a big reason. But I would love to see more large studios with big budgets invest in the genre so we can get more tentpole um, experiences. And I think that, you know, we're going to see something of that ilk when Death Stranding comes. You know, I think that is kind of, they've opened the door to show us like, could this be a really amazing, spooky, scary type game? The Silent Hills that we thought we were going to get from, you know, Guillermo del Toro and and Hideo Kojima. I would like to see more of that. Um, But, you know, there was enough people out there that would probably argue against me to say that the jank is part of the charm of the game. (laughs) But I guess I just have played so many games throughout my career that my tolerance for, you know, lackluster game making is running pretty thin and like the charm of it is going to be a hard sell for me i take polish over charm any day yeah especially with so much great stuff coming out these days i mean i'm not the first person to say it but this year might be the one of the best years for video gaming on the books uh jared what do you want to see in the future how can the industry improve in your eyes i would like to see a little bit less stuff like I know the the first Evil Within got pretty graphic with the violence and the deaths and stuff like that. Um, it's been done, you know. I think horror movies probably do it better. The the torture porn stuff, I'm not really into. I don't think that's scary. I think it's just it's unsettling in a way that I I find often uh, distasteful. I would like to see more things that are that are more atmosphere building. The the first two Silent Hill games, while yes, they were they were pretty violent and depicted uh, kind of graphic imagery. They they went out of their way to build an atmosphere and and tell kind of a weird story. I would like to see more world building. And I find myself enjoying stories that are telling a, a smaller tale, whether it be a relationship between two characters uh, that just so happens to be set in a, a horror setting, um, something like The Last of Us I really enjoyed. Uh, versus versus you know just crazy monsters popping out out of out of vents and that you have to cut limbs off of. I think it's been done. 
um, we're, I think we should be ready to move on to uh, more intricate and interesting ways of, of telling those, those stories. Yeah, I agree. That was going to be kind of like what I was going to say for, for what I would like to see in the future is I think that there is a, a kind of horror that is not necessarily jump scares and dismemberment and gore, but uh, there's a horror that sort of exists in the everyday that, that can be explored. I think about like in, in filmmaking, I think we've been starting to see this a lot more often. A few years ago, the, the movie Babadook came out and was sort of a, a cult hit. For those who haven't seen that movie, it's it's about a a woman, you know, a, a single mother raising a child that has special needs, and the the horror in that movie is not necessarily just for horror's sake. It's not just oh, there's there's a, a ghost living in their house. How are they going to get rid of it? But it it more acts as like a metaphor for her struggles of of dealing with living in that situation, and um, I think video games could take some cues from filmmaking in these regards because I think in most horror video games, th- there's no deeper layer to it. It's you're, you're, you're shooting zombies and the zombies aren't representing something else. So I think it would be cool if games were able to explore the more subtle aspects of horror. Might be, might be harder said than done though because I think you know in video games in general, we're sort of more used to you know, being able to shoot everything. The the survival horror genre has a unique opportunity to tell its own stories outside of, you know, just copying what film has been doing forever. Well, Andrea, where can people keep up with uh, with your work? The best place to find out what I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter. And that is at Andrea Renee. So A-N-D-R-E-A-R-E-N-E. And that's where you'll find what I'm up to, not only on What's Good Games, but also on Kind of Funny Games Daily and all of the other projects that I'm working on. And, you know, thank you so much for the What's Good Games shout out. If you guys like video game podcasts and you're looking for something to add to your lineup, you know, we'd appreciate you giving us a shot. Go do it right now. (laughs) <laughs> well, maybe maybe wait till the end of this episode and then go do it. But but definitely go give What's Good Games a, a listen. I, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Have a happy Halloween. All right. And with that, we will go ahead and move on to our feedback section. If you have any questions or comments about survival horror games or any of our previous topics, you can always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, we're always taking ideas for future episode topics. So send those along as well. Jared. What do we got? So there was some news that came out between our last couple of podcasts. Uh, Activision was filing a patent for a matchmaking system that they're developing that um, basically prioritized matching people who uh, did not engage in microtransactions with people who do engage in microtransactions. And the internet, as it tends to do, got a little bit upset when they, when they heard this news and assumed for the most part that they were going to try to use this for nefarious reasons like um pay pay to win basically putting players who who spend money at an advantage over uh people who are not engaging in that 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 system so um our our friend Chester Copperpot on Facebook wrote us about that 
And he says, this is the type of nefarious BS design choice I can't support with loot boxes. They won't prevent you from playing, but they'll be willing to intentionally matchmake you with people outside your skill set in order to encourage you to invest in their microtransactions. This isn't meant to make the game more fun. This is meant to make it more profitable at the expense of enjoyment. New or low-skilled players should be matched with like for the sake of balance. Activision is using game-breaking feature episode 10 to drive episode 11 exclamation point I like and that. <laughs> I, I like for, to think for, that somebody is at uh, sitting at activision avidly listening to our podcast and, yeah. and trying to piss us off for people who don't remember our episode 10 topic was balance and our episode 11 topic was loot boxes so he's suggesting that they're using balance to drive loot box sales uh he had a couple of follow-up comments to that and he said uh he was clarifying that it was it was they're trying to sell DLC and not loot boxes, but he sees the two as sides of the same coin. I'll take the tinfoil hat for now. This is a big deal, I think, for a lot of people. I know a lot of people online got really upset about it, but I'm curious what you think about this, Jared. What do you think about this patent that Activision had filed and received? I think maybe a lot of people are jumping to conclusions about what this, what, how they're going to implement this system while... I think this would be a detriment if it was implemented in a, in a pay-to-win type system where you pay money and, and have a advantage in a single or a, I'm sorry, a multiplayer game. Um, I think they're they're more talking about showing people like cosmetics and other fun stuff that you could get um, if you know they're, they're trying to like show this these things off that people are buying, so it, it would encourage people to 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 see that. Uh, Others are spending their money. I, I don't. I don't know. It. It sounds on the surface. It sounds a little shady, but I. I don't think ultimately it's gonna be this huge, upsetting thing that everyone seems to think it is. Yeah, I agree. I think there was. I think my knee jerk reaction was probably similar to the the way the internet reacted to this news of like, what the hell? Why would they? Why would they do this? We we haven't seen if or how they're gonna implement it in games. If they did implement it, most people probably would never even notice a difference in their matchmaking. I mean, I definitely have times in Overwatch where I'll, you know, I'll lose 10 games in a row. Matchmaking is a tricky thing. You know, I, I think to add one more sort of like wrinkle to matchmaking uh, is a bad thing because it's already so difficult to do. And then if you're also trying to do this other thing on top of it, it's, you know, it, it makes the whole thing even harder. I think a lot of the the very vocal frustrations with this are are kind of for nothing. You know, I, I think if you were going to get upset about something in the way that companies are monetizing video games, the worst things that could ever happen are already in place in games. I think that I think that loot boxes are already pretty problematic. I think pay to win is already pretty problematic. I think that microtransactions and season passes and DLC and, you know, at, at least the way that they're being um, handled in a modern context are all way more problematic than this thing. And so yeah, in a way, I think that this, you know, this patent is a drop in the bucket that's already overflowing. If <laughs> if that metaphor makes any sense, it's a it's a straw on the back of a camel that's already been broken. Stop. OK, <laughs> the horse is dead. <laughs> But does that make sense? Like, I, I, I think if you were going to get upset about something, you should have got upset 10 years ago. Now, I think it's a little, 
a little too late. I mean, I, I think it's a good thing to voice concerns about this because I, I, I don't think it's a great idea, but I don't think anyone, I don't even think Activision thinks it's a good idea anymore. No, and I don't know how this would work in practice. Like you said, matchmaking is, is hard enough as it is. Um, adding adding this layer of, well, we're going to put people who buy cosmetics, we're going to match them with people who don't buy that. I just, I, I don't think there's any game right now that has a large enough player pool for that to be effective anyways. Uh, if if it did break things to the, the point of now you're playing against someone who has 200 hours when you just started, um, that's just that's just matchmaking that's broken. So I, I don't I, I'm not too worried about it yet. We'll see what happens. But um, I don't know when it, when it came out. It just seemed like a non story to me. Yeah. And, and I guess the last thing I'll say about it is the, the language in the patent, at least the way that it was the way I interpreted it was the the goal was obviously to make money. I mean, Activision's a business. They want to make money. But it was the language in the patent seemed like they were trying to make spending money in their games feel rewarding. Now, whether or not that's actually how, what that experience would shake out like, I you know, I, I can't speak to that. It hasn't been implemented at all. But if Activision is truly trying to make you feel better about spending money, I don't see what the problem is with that. You know, if they're trying to make that experience a good experience for you, um, you know, trying to trying to come up with subtle ways to, to do that, I think that's fine as long as, you know, as long as that's what their goal is. But what else we got, Jared? Our friend Cam in Australia. He wrote Hello, us a couple. Cam. Hey, Cam. How you doing? Yeah, he wrote us a couple of emails. Um, one was a bit longer, but he was kind of explaining one of his previous uh, ideas of of intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards. Uh, in-game rewards. And he sent us a follow-up email recently, and he says, uh, hey guys, I just noticed that the new ARMS update, the game for Nintendo Switch, uh, he's uh, introduced new badges, aka achievements, which give you credits to spend on in-game rewards, like new ARMS and and equipment to put on your character. Uh, I thought I'd let you know of a more modern example of an intrinsic reward for an achievement than examples I previously gave. Interestingly, it's still on a console that doesn't have a system-wide achievement system. I wonder how frequently Xbox or PlayStation developers tie intrinsic rewards to system achievements. Cheers from Cam. Um, and that's cool. Yeah, like I like the idea of being able to uh, being rewarded in game. And that, I mean, that's how games used to be, right? You would you would unlock things as you as you played through them. And I, I enjoy that versus uh, getting a blind loot box and uh, just hoping for the best after spending two or three dollars on a, on a gamble. I can't think of any specific examples on like PlayStation where, you know, if you achieve something or if you unlock an achievement on the system, it also has some sort of in-game reward. I'm, I'm not really aware of if that if that's a thing. Um I, I, I was never able to get into like the, the. I know everyone was like super hard into Xbox Gamer Score, yeah, I and, never was and PlayStation trophies, and I never really got into it. And I was like, I didn't get it, and I still really don't. Other than like, it's a neat like backlog of the things that you've done. I think we might be. I think we might have been too old for that. Maybe I think that that stuff is kind of marketed more towards the like the social media generation. But I was like, do you get to use those points or anything? Like, what are those points good for? And I think it's just I don't know. I, it's a high score, a system wide. I don't. I don't know. It's more of that. It's more of that like player envy stuff where you're comparing your score to other people's score. It's now, a powerful uh, tool, man. Ubisoft 
they they do use that system in that way. You um, uh, at least on on the PC for a lot of Ubisoft games that use UPlay. Uh, as you play games and unlock achievements, you get U points, and that can be used to unlock new skins for your guns or um, new wallpapers or soundtracks to download. Just you know, kind of small things. But you know, they're 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 an ach- it's an achievement system that converts into a currency that uh, you can spend to earn things in the game. And I think um, while there's a lot of negatives to be said about Ubisoft, as I often do. Uh, I, I give them props for that because it, that turned uh, a, that system pretty kind of into something kind of useful for me. Nice. Well, well, save some of that conversation because when we do this episode, we gotta we gotta have something to talk about. <laughs> but Cam, thank you for um, you know continuing to send along more more feedback on that episode topic. Yeah, and know. thanks for continuing to listen to us ramble on. Yeah, once we find a you know a, a good guest to talk about that with, we'll we'll definitely make it happen. Something tells me the discussion around loot boxes and microtransactions is are far from over. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, Steve. Um, real quick, we got someone on the line here that uh, the, who's called in before, and he wanted to um, just talk about some stuff regarding peripherals. All right, listener, you're on the air. Um, go ahead. His name is um, uh, Mark. I think it was from uh, from Arizona. Let's see what he has to say. Stephen, it's your dad. On the topic of peripherals, I wanted to share a couple of thoughts, insights, remembrances. First, you question whether the controller that comes with a console would be considered a peripheral, and of course it's a peripheral. Just because it comes with a console doesn't mean that it's not what it is, it's a peripheral. Second, it really bugs me that Sony, and I don't know about the other people, the other manufacturers, that they don't allow you to say, you know, I'm going to use a mouse and keyboard to control this game because that's comfortable, intuitive. I, you know me, I just don't have the feel, the fine, fine motor control to use the controllers that come with the consoles, pushing those little joysticks around a little, a lot, fast, slow. You know me, I'm a button masher. Third, I wanted to remind you about the controllers that came with the Bally Arcade I don't know who's old enough to remember and hasn't died yet, but uh, they were shaped like the grip of a pistol, an old six-shooter pistol, with a trigger where you'd expect it, but up on top, where the rear sight would be, there was a joystick that acted as a joystick, but whose handle was also a rotatable knob. So you had a trigger and a joystick and a turnable knob, all in a comfortable-to-hold, human-hand-sized unit, not like those tiny, twisted, gnarly contraptions they make now. Finally, I think you mentioned getting rid of the guitars and the like from one of your games, and maybe you did, but there's a closet full of guitars and drum things over here, and maybe it went to a different game that uh, took guitars and drum kits, but I've got a closet full of crap over here, so uh, figured I'd just remind you. You know where I live. Hey, Jared, how you doing? <laughs> well, thanks, Mark. Uh I like your I like your fake laugh after every time we do one of these call-ins. <laughs> well, you know, it, uh, I always enjoy your dad. Always has such nice things to say about me, so um, it's it's always good to hear from him. And uh, yeah, what's up with the the closet full of plastic instruments? Is your is your dad? No, I'm sure I'm sure they're mine. Yeah, dude, I had so many instruments at one point, and I did. I know I expunged some of them from my life. Um, but man, I, I, I'm guessing it's Guitar Hero stuff. If I had to take one educated guess, I think I got rid of most of my rock band stuff, but I bet he's got Guitar Hero drums and guitars up there. Okay, well, if, when I'm in town or if I'm in town for the holidays, you need to uh, maybe dig that stuff out. We might have to uh, have a little bit of uh, 
Rock Band Guitar Hero reunion. Oh, I don't, I don't own the games anymore. I just have, the, I just have the peripherals. <laughs> I, I like the uh, the Bally Arcade controller design that he mentioned. Um, I think controllers, in a way, sort of have gotten a little unwieldy. Button inputs have also gotten more complex, and we need more places to put them. So, like, I guess it's cool that there, you know, with a joystick and a knob and a and a button, you could play a bunch of those old games. But now we live in the 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 world of 3D game design, and I think you need to have a lot more inputs and stuff. VR is sort of kind of bringing us back to thinking about how yeah, we interact with games. That's true. Uh, the Oculus Touch, I think, is is the most notable example of being a super cool idea um and especially you know for for a vr medium it kind of explores different ways to interact with it so um you know for if you're not familiar with it it, it's a game that allows you to use your fingers there's sensors inside like a ring and it allows you to pick things up like a human would and uh that that really goes a long ways for making uh, that experience a one-to-one type feeling yeah and i i mean i think the news just recently came out that microsoft is completely abandoning the connect but that was another sort of you know, attempt to take the controller out of your hand and return to this simpler time of like, how how can we make it so you're not handling this big clunky controller in your hand? But I don't personally have an issue with, with the the way controllers are designed now. Like he mentioned in his phone call, I do wish that consoles would sort of natively support a mouse and keyboard. I think that for a lot of people, that's more comfortable and and provides more uh, sort of accuracy in movements particularly in in aiming so i i agree i think it would be cool if if sony and microsoft both kind of allowed that to be supported natively i think as our generation starts to get older we're gonna see changes in controllers probably bigger controllers that are that are easier to uh navigate you know as as we age our dexterity is not going to be like it used to so I imagine there will be a bigger market with our generation who who grew up more with games in the mainstream, um, needing access to to different styles of controllers that uh, might necessarily uh, age well with us. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our feedback section. Remember, you can always send us emails at podcast at gbfeature.com. And that's actually going to do it for this episode. Remember, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. You can find me at Jared Bruner on Twitter. And there's one more little housekeeping thing. This is our last opportunity to mention that on November 4th, 2017, I will be doing the Extra Life 24-hour charity stream. You can find that on November 4th, starting at 8 a.m. Pacific time at twitch.tv slash Jared Bruner. I'll be there all day. We're raising money to go towards a local children's hospital. And uh, it should be good times. I would, I would love anyone to join us, get in some multiplayer games, and uh, I'm going to try to put on you know a little bit of a, a good production for everybody so it's enjoyable to watch. So I hope to see everyone there. I'll be there. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. Happy Halloween! Get spooky. Bye, Jared. Bye.